Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. We're here for the podcast Invested, which is about what we call rule number one investing. And that's all about, gosh, not losing <laughs> money for starters. It's, it's investing your values. It is investing it's your values. my sense of it. Yep. And it's, it's actually taking on the financial service industry paradigm that says that if you want to invest, you have to understand some basic things about the stock market. And the first one is that you can't beat the stock market. <laughs> that's, that would what, be the, that's what everyone else is supposed to know? Everybody's supposed to know that. You oh. can't beat the stock market. And the reason you can't beat the stock market is because it, uh, in the stock market, all prices are the correct values of the business, or, or rather, all prices are correct. Oh, at any given time. At any given time. It's efficient. This is the efficient market hypothesis or exactly. theory? Hypothesis. Hypothesis. And from that comes modern portfolio theory, which is how your 401k, mutual funds, pension funds are all being managed by 95, 99% of the fund managers out there are managing the money according to the principles of modern portfolio theory, which say, first, you can't beat the market because it's very efficient and no one's going to sell a $100 value for 50 bucks. Not going to happen, which makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And that no rational person is going to pay $200 for something worth $100. So the market being full of very rational people and very efficient means that prices and values are the same thing. Now, of course, the question is whether people stay rational in the stock market, because if everybody is rational in the stock market, then nobody would beat the market. But we know that Warren Buffett and other great investors like that, and, and in our personal experience, is that the market is, in fact, something you can do better than. Better than others. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a certain strategy that you use to do that, um, that basically says that the principles of modern portfolio theory are wrong. Okay. I mean, I have. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, like, maybe it's wrong. I don't know. I have no like. What is that phrase? No, no dog in no that hunt. No dog in that hunt. Yeah. No dog in that hunt. Yeah. All right. Well, um, fair enough. I mean, my my sense of it from our forty hours or whatever it is of recording this podcast is that maybe you have a point. All right. It seems like. Yeah, if you pick like two companies and they do well, you're going to beat the market, obviously. No, no, that not so obviously. That seems conceivable to me. No, that's not conceivable. Why is that not conceivable? <laughs> because the wonderfulness of the companies is not sufficient. It's necessary in order to figure out that it's a good company, that it's a, a that it has a value. It's necessary that they be a pretty good company so you can figure that out. But once you figure out the value um, the price you pay for the company is incredibly determinant of what kind of return you're going to do well with. So if you pay too much for a really great company, you're going to have a really bad return, even though it's a really great company. Sure. What I meant was you buy a, a company and the stock price goes up and maybe the market went sideways that year. Right. Therefore, you have beaten the market. Yes. Well, I'm totally not following you. Where did, how did the stock price go up? I don't know so how. Why did it go up? I don't know. It's my imaginary Okay, two so you, you buy an imaginary company and the stock price goes up yeah, more than like, the market that you This is like, use your imagination for a minute. I got it. I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining this. All right. And um, now the stock market's gone sort of sideways, but this stock did well. It's up 30%. Yeah. 
I have right. Have I then beaten the market? Am you I, did beat the market okay. for that year. Okay. Right. Exactly. So that's great. <laughs> like, isn't that what we're talking about? No. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So we have to start over. <laughs> Throw away all of the previous podcasts. The what we're talking about is much more long term than that. So what okay, we're looking at. Okay, but like a year is meaningless. Good. It's meaningless. It's not meaningless. Yeah, it really is. It, because by the same logic, you'd say, if it's meaningful that it went up 30%, then it would be meaningful that it went down 30%, our imaginary company. And then you it wouldn't would be so be happy about this. It would definitely be meaningful. Not really. No. Okay, here's where I think you're wrong. Okay. Because you are about to say that just because the price goes down doesn't have any bearing on the actual value of the company. Right. And that you bought that company understanding the value and therefore the price going down really means nothing. But that's not true because what it actually means is you need to look at your company again and say, did I anticipate that the price can go down? If I didn't, why is it going down? And does that change my opinion of the value of this company? Is this new information or is this information I already had and I already factored it into the value? If it's new information, you have to redo your analysis of that company. Don't you? Yes. Yes, yes. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. That was incredible. You sounded like an investor there. Oh, thank you. That was really... <laughs> that was investing Actually, talk. is that a compliment? I'm not sure. That is a compliment. I, I'm I mean, not that, sure that's a compliment. I don't know if I want to be an investor. You're, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Well, so the point is... It depends on, on whether you want total control of your life or not. <laughs> oh, is that? <laughs> Whether you want to be an investor or not. Is that, is that the that's, criteria? That's what I think is part of the deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're fine. You don't know have to be an investor. You can retire 20 years later than you would have otherwise. You know, sure, go ahead. Um, I'm going to pick total control. Thanks. All right, good. Okay. But I think so you're making a really is, good point. I think the price does matter in terms of our uh, analysis and opinion of that company. And, and so I, if the price goes up over the course of the year, yes, I think it does matter. And I, I, would, I would say that in the real world, you're right. Because in the real world, we have emotions. And when the stock price is dropping 30%, I, I don't care how rational you try to be about the value of the business isn't changing, the stock price dropping 30% is scary. No, I don't even mean it like that. Let's, oh. let's assume we are emotionless. And All right. We're and robots. that is not something I generally assume. I support us all having feelings and emotions. <laughs> but let's assume that we are emotion. We're not a, maybe, maybe a better way is to say we are so in tune with our emotions that they do not govern us. We govern them. Well, fine. Yeah, it's really deep. Okay. Um, the point is, we aren't controlled by fear. Okay. Let's assume that. Okay. So I still think if the price goes down 30% or up 30%, it's information that we should take into account in our analysis, right? Like, I'm not saying you have to sell your shares, or, but it's just that's good information to have about the company so that you can kind of, like, check your opinion. Well, I think that that's what it's doing. Is, and I'm taking it in terms of fear and saying there's an emotion there. And so you go and check your opinion, and you're saying it's data and therefore you go check your opinion. Either well, way, that, you're going to go check your opinion. Wouldn't that be true but even if it goes necessary. up and you're not feeling fear, you're feeling elation? You still go check your opinion. Like, dude, is this as much as I think it's going to go? Is whatever I thought was going to happen, has that thing happened? And now it's over? Well, yeah, we always have directional bias, right? I mean, if we're 
expecting this thing's going to go up and it goes up, it confirms our bias, and, and then we maybe are not going to be so checking on it because it's already confirmed it. It's, it's when it's counter to our, our bias, which means if we think it's 50% off and we're buying it, theoretically it ought to go back up in a year or two, and it goes more down over the next year or two. Um, it would drive most human beings to check their thesis, right? True. We call it the story, right? We talked about that. So we've got this story we would check. But if you've done a good job on your story, um, unless something has changed in the company, which you should have known about prior to the price changing, unless really? there's a front page issue going on there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the company, if it's well managed, if it's got good, honest people, they know where they're going to have issues, right? So let's say you're running Gildan, for an example. They're the t-shirt company in Canada. And they know that now that cotton has gone to $2.25 a pound, they need to alert their owners that the next year is going to be a loss, a loss-making year. Mm-hmm. Because at two and a quarter a pound, they can't make money. Okay. All right. So th- at that point in time, the stock is at $45 a share. Then the CEO comes out and notifies all of the owners, hey, we're, uh, we've got this issue with cotton prices. And then the stock price starts down as one short-term owner after another decides, you know, a year or two of the stock going down isn't good for my fund, so I'm going to get out. Right. It makes me look bad. Yeah. So if you really kind of, if, you, if you're actually owning your company, this is why we say we only want to own five or ten of these at a time, you're paying attention to these kinds of announcements coming out. This stock price going down thing wouldn't have been a surprise to you at all. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I imagine prices to be this mysterious, opaque, uh, completely irrational uh, <laughs> sort of like world random. Of, of numbers. How about random? Because yeah, that's... I don't know. About, well, maybe they're well, random. I would, I would argue that 95% of the people investing money out there professionally would say that those stock prices are random, which is a stunning thing to say if you think about it. What so how they can mean, they all believe in efficient market hypothesis if they think that the numbers are random? Randomness, uh, the, the randomness comes from this idea that there's a very even distribution of, of possible events in the stock market that follows a bell curve. And that if, you, uh, if today's price is absolutely correct relative to its value, which is what our assumption is under this theory, then it's completely random whether this goes down or up. We don't, it's priced perfectly. So hmm. what's going to happen in the world? We don't know. It could be anything. It could sure. good things, bad things. Sure. <laughs> it's just whether it goes down or up. And so all options are priced as if the underlying stock is perfectly priced, and it's a random event one way or the other, whether Equal it goes up or down. Equal chance either direction. Equal chance either direction. So that's how probabilities are set in options. Oh, okay. Which is what gives us an ob- uh, By the way, we haven't talked about this, but we think we have an edge in options investing, and we do real well with options investing, as you know. But um, the reason is, is because we think that stocks actually have directionality. We think that it's Who not all stocks. Who's we? Me. You, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did the king thing, didn't I? We, the royal we. Oh my God, I don't know who you're talking. It's not me, so. <laughs> me and all my students okay. think this. And so, and, and uh, what that does is it tells us that uh, if we can find a company 
that the value is at 100 and the stock is selling for 50, then there's directionality. It's likely this stock is going to move to 100 over the next year or two. Yeah. Right? Okay. And that helps our options trading. So that's an aside. Yeah. But it came about by saying that the market is random as part of modern portfolio theory. They say it's random. So what that means is that if you beat the market, it's a random event. You just got lucky. You were a monkey flipping coins, and you caught 100 heads in a row. It doesn't mean you know how to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a huge point, right? So essentially, when they came out with this theory, they were calling Warren Buffett a monkey flipping coin. So we've talked about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think he's proven pretty well that he's either an incredibly lucky monkey and has had 50 years of stunning luck, um, or something else is going on. And Buffett made that point when he delivered this 1984 paper to Columbia, where he pointed out another 15 investors or so who had the same kind of luck he had. And he said, and this, is, this means it's not random, because all of these investors are investing the same way mm-hmm. in what we call rule one investing. So what, I, what you call rule, that's not what Warren Buffett called it. No, he calls it the investors from Graham and Doddsville, okay. which is <laughs> the book called Securities Analysis, written by Ben Graham and, and David Dodd back in 1934 that became the Bible of understanding that price and value are, can be very different things because of the emotion in the market. Hmm. And that's the difference. So here you have the vast majority of people, virtually everyone who's running money for you, robo-advisors, everybody, is investing as if it's true that the market is random, prices are random, going up or down, that you must take more risk to get a higher reward, but you can't get the higher reward over a long term because the risk, extra risk is going to take you down eventually. That's what it means to say that the market's efficient and that um, you can't beat the market. And so you know, we're out here trying to teach you that you can. You. I'm out here trying to teach you that you can. <laughs> and a lot of people that I've trained are out trying to teach other people that they can do this because they've seen it in their own investing, in their own lives. And so we start to think that maybe there's something wrong with the theory, you know? Maybe there's just something wrong with the theory. So it's kind of fun to kind of go to well, the beginnings of like the theory. Well, it doesn't sound like you think it's a maybe. I mean, it sounds like you fully bought into the idea that it's yeah, not correct. Yeah, something's wrong with the theory. And I think, as we mentioned earlier, that uh, Robert Schiller at Yale wrote a book called Irrational Exuberance, where he disproves efficient market hypothesis. And he shows that the market is actually full of emotion, and that emotion causes people to determine to get out of something that they should stay in. And as a result, the market fluctuates from being overvalued and overpriced to undervalued and underpriced. And it's been doing so regularly <clears throat> as far back as Schiller took the data, which was clear back to 1870. So absolutely, you can get bargains in the stock market. But um, I wanted to kind of, and here's maybe even more important, not only can you get bargains in the stock market, but you can get a very high rate of return with very low risk because you can get bargains in the stock market. So risk and reward are thought to be, by modern portfolio theory, necessarily related. You can't get a higher return without taking more risk. But it's turning out lately, and uh, it's been written about popularly by uh, Nicholas Taleb, that the data that these guys used to create modern portfolio theory has within it the seeds of its own destruction. That is, the data proves that they're wrong. Hmm. When did he write about that? Uh, Taleb wrote about that in Fooled by Randomness. 
Okay. Um, and also, again, in uh, Anti-Fragile. Oh, yeah. I started reading Anti-Fragile. Yeah, it's pretty stunning. Yeah. Uh, I really like it. And I really like it also because our investing strategies are all about being anti-fragile. Um, anti-fragile investing means that when sudden, unexpected, negative events occur, you get better. It's not that you're just a pillar uh, against the wind. You actually benefit from this negative experience. Yeah, it was interesting. He wrote, I've just started it, but he wrote um, about trying to find the right word for that. There is no right word for that. And he could not find one, which I thought was fascinating because... We have the word strong or resilient, right? but none of those imply actually being strengthened, actually uh, being benefited uh, b- benefiting by. by being buffeted by the wind, so to speak. Right. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, as, as because if, as because as we also kind of, the reason we don't have a word for it is we don't really have that concept in our we society. We don't really. I mean, it's like we see ourselves kind of as like oaks who stand strong and standing strong is a really good thing. Or maybe we see ourselves as aspens that wave in the wind <laughs> and we still are there at the end. But but we we don't have much of a metaphor or an idea for actually being strengthened and improved. Which which is weird because we have a lot of stuff like in like, you know, like songs like Born to be Wild or poetry from Frost about, you know, the path less traveled by. Mm-hmm are about that freedom and and that your life grows and benefits from going out and being buffeted or poetry by Emerson where he's talking about man isn't you know man's like a ship we're not we're not built to sit in the harbor we're built for the ocean waves and the high seas and if you live your life sitting in the harbor to push Emerson's metaphor you rot <laughs> in the harbor yeah it's it's the high yeah. seas where you benefit so we have we have philosophical and poetic and, and, and modern music images about this, but we don't have a word for it. And it's certainly not taught in schools uh, in any way that I know of. But it is the principle of rule one investing. It's the principle of used by all the investors of Graham and Doddsville that Buffett is talking about. Because think about it. The basic idea is to wait patiently with a list of great companies that you really like until the market goes through one of these dives that are natural fluctuations of the market, and then that's when you buy. Well, that dive looks to everybody else in the world like Armageddon. Yeah. You know, your, your 401k is being decimated, your, your retirement is being destroyed, and fear dominates the environment at that point in time. And here you are as a rule one investor, as a, as a disciple of Warren Buffett and Ben Graham, here you are benefiting from that turbulence. And that means you're anti-fragile. So all the things we're talking well, about make you anti-fragile. Well, it means your emotions are very, um, strong is the wrong word, but like your emotions are not, this is what I was saying earlier poorly, I think your emotions are not governing you. You are governing well your emotions. And th- the more we discuss this, the more I'm... You know, as I've been saying, I've been trying to find sort of a way into this thing to make it interesting. And and I think for me, it's much to my shock, maybe becoming a bit of like a personal growth exercise <laughs> because I figure this is important in lots of areas of life, right? To be able to not be affected by other people's fear or not to be affected by other people's excitement. 
not to be affected by other people's emotions, basically. And we all are, that's just reality. But to be able to take a moment, to step back, to notice it, that it's happening, and then to take action after that in a deliberate way. That is the difference compared to just like having a full on emotional reaction and doing something and then noticing it two years later when you really wish you hadn't done that thing. Man, I, I think you're right. I mean, and in terms of, you know, becoming a, a really whole person, you know, that's, those are ideals that I think we would all say are pretty clearly what we'd want yeah, to achieve, I, you know? I don't know, if, I, I don't know if I've really, like, thought about it like that until we've reached this, this that, until I've started this project on the stock market with you. Like, to think about the actual feeling of buying shares in a company and like putting my money in that that's really really frightening to me legitimately like I feel like tightness in my chest Mm -hmm. that's what's going on in my body you know yeah and I think that's probably true for a lot of people and that feeling is super uncomfortable like it's not fun I don't really want to feel it so my instinct is to get away from that feeling I don't want to do it so I'm not going to buy those shares because it doesn't feel good and that's legit like it doesn't feel good right and so i'm just not going to do it and i'd I'd rather give my money to somebody else because then i don't have to feel that literally that physical reaction i got it um i mean i've done a lot of kind of you know like out on the edge sorts of physical activities jumped out of planes you know and ridden motorcycles i like to play but get on fast horses and all that sort of thing and i can tell you that um, I mean, I think this feeling, is completely different than that. Oh, no, I don't think it's so completely different. I, I think it's about not knowing what you're doing. I think that if you, if you don't have familiarity with a thing um, that has a big downside for you, which, you know, these issues are like physical downside, you're going to get hurt, um, that feeling absolutely of fear and the unwillingness to go do it, I mean... A lot of people very sensibly aren't going to go get on a horse. Yeah, okay, right? fair point. Yeah, you're right. I, I see but, how those are But if you connected. if you go step by step, you can take somebody who has a great fear of riding a horse and you start them really at a basic level and you begin to bring them along. Yeah, it's a fear of your own incompetence. It's an awareness. And it's you an know, awareness of your own incompetence. It's an awareness. Yeah, it's not, it's not that you're imagining you might be incompetent. You know no, no, you are. Right, you know. Yeah, exactly. And so naturally, your body's starting to respond like, please don't do this because you know you don't know what you're doing. I think the difference between like riding a motorcycle or riding a horse or jumping out of an airplane or whatever, the difference between those experiences and like pressing the button on your computer to buy shares is that those experiences have the potential to be really fun. And so you're excited. The pressing the button to buy the shares is not fun in any way to me. There's n- is it fun to you? Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. It's great. Oh, it just feels like, oh, my God. But, I mean, that's like you're, really you're, at, you're saying, like, I, I don't know how to ride, and you love the idea of getting on a horse, but to me, it's completely crazy. There's nothing about getting on that horse that's fun. Okay? So I think they're pretty similar. Um, when I, when I, I mean, I want to make the, make it really clear that investing is a rare, rare thing that you do. What does that mean? It means you have maybe, maybe the right way to do it is you've got 
a punch card with 20 possible oh, punches on it for your life. Oh, you actually purchasing yeah. shares in a company, yeah. not, not investing in the greater sense. No, I'm talking about doing it the way we do it. Okay. Like, you've got a punch card with 20 punches on it. That's one way to think about this. For your life. For your whole life. So for 40 years of investing, you're averaging one every two years you're going to pull the trigger on. And into that comes the, the research into hundreds of companies over a two-year period, you're, right? Because sure. you're looking at lots of stuff. Now, most of that research is taking five minutes <laughs> because it's really quickly five minutes. I obviously don't know anything about this, not interested in it, right? But some of them you really get into it, and eventually, before you'd ever own a company, you're going to put in 15 or 20 hours of reading and really come to understand what that thing's doing. So the idea that it's not fun to go in and actually pull the trigger only comes around because you're still afraid to pull the trigger. It's when you've done your homework and you're excited and you've been waiting for six months for the market to turn that thing from something that's too expensive to something that's on sale and it happens, that's awesome because so much <laughs> of the time it doesn't happen. Oh, it's like, okay. okay, I know this is a great company. I'd love to go buy Chipotle Mexican Grill. I just can't. I, you know, I, yeah. I'm out of it and I can't get back yeah. in because it's too expensive. But if they would come and deliver this to me for $200, I would get real excited. <laughs> I would be thrilled. I mean, yeah. Hit the button. All right. That doesn't, okay, fair enough. That doesn't sound so bad. I mean, think about it like this. There, there's a, a great story about some insurance guys who were going up in an elevator in Omaha in Warren Buffett's building. Mm -hmm. And they were looking at him. He was in the elevator with him. And they were looking at him, looking at a penny that's on the floor. Buffett. Okay, okay. <laughs> looking at a penny. And they're all sitting there wondering, this guy said later, is he going to pick that up? Like, you know, the billionaire, right? Because none of them are going to pick it up. It's a penny. And so they all waited. Nobody did anything. Gets a Buffett floor. The door's open. He steps out, turns around, picks up the penny, and looks at these guys and goes, beginning of the next billion. Oh, come on. That did not happen. <laughs> come on. Don't blow my bubble up. <laughs> you don't think it really is real? That just He's very, like... Quiet, isn't he? Come on. That sounds very buffety to me. Really? I'm, not, I'm believing that story. Okay. All right. But I don't know Start, for sure. That's such a braggy thing it. to say. That's such a swaggy Bieber thing to say. <laughs> Start of the next billion. Good God. There's I a hope, point I to it. I hope you didn't say that, Mr. Buffett. Well, there's a point to it. And I don't think it was that he's bragging. I think that it's just an understanding of reality that it's fun <laughs> to grab money that's Free. That's one thing, <laughs> even if it's a penny. Second, that it is the way he invests, anything he can get into it is potentially going to explode over a long period of time to become a billion dollars, even a penny. Oh, given I enough get time. It. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks. Okay, fine. Fine. Then let me bring you back to one more thing. We started saying, like, that. Um, you know, this this idea that as part of what you're going to be doing as an investor, as a rule one style investor, is to kind of not get fearful when everybody else is freaking out, is fundamental to doing this. Fundamental to it. And you were saying that it's maybe, you know, you really grow as a person. Yeah. If well, you can do that. You know, So one hopes. I don't know if you remember this, but after your grandfather, after your grandfather died and we were at his funeral or his memorial... I read this poem by Kipling, Kipling uh, called "If." Mm -hmm. Let me let me remind you of the first line. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. Okay. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Hmm. I mean, the first thing, in other words, this is a, this is a poem about what it is to be a man or a woman that's fully realized, mm-hmm. I think, right? Mm-hmm. They, they got it going on 100%. Self-possessed. Self-possessed person. Yeah. And the first yeah. line is about what we're talking about. Yeah. And I think if we can do that, and we, meaning me and everyone else who is listening to this, I think if we can do that, um, that's like an amazing revolution in, first of all, us taking control of our money, our finances, our financial future. And secondly, in like, let's make the world a better place by being better ourselves. Very cool. And it starts with something basic. It's a small thing and it's a personal thing, but I I really believe it makes a huge difference generally out there. I love it. And I don't think it's really any harder once you start to learn the principles. I don't think it's any harder than, let's say, you know, it's 2009. The market has melted down from, you know, 14,000. Now it's at 6,000. It's been, you know, we're in this financial freeze and, and nobody can get a loan. And you're going to a garage sale. And at the garage sale, you're looking for, let's say, uh, your expertise is mink coats. And you're looking for a mink coat that's on sale that you can unload on eBay. And you know that maybe you're going to have to hold it for a while because the market sort of sucks. But if you can get it for the right price, you don't mind sitting on it for a while. And so you're going into this garage sale, you're going into this flea market, and you're looking for this mink, and you see this mink there, you recognize this originally cost $10,000. These people are unloaded, it's got paint, somebody threw paint on them. Good. And, 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 but you know how to clean it off. Oh, great. <laughs> it's a metaphor. Okay. <laughs> and you can buy it for 100 bucks. So you give the guy 100 bucks. Here's the point. There's turmoil and fear all around you because of the stock market. People have had 50% of their 401ks disappear in a matter of a year. So this is, and there's economic fear, there's international fear, all kinds of fear. None of that affects you because you're in a market you understand. You totally know what you're doing. And so you don't even think about that other stuff. In fact, the fact that there's this stuff going on might make it even better for you. People might need some cash. You might be dumping some stuff. You might find a few things more often than you would normally in this Mm -hmm. kind of an environment. Mm -hmm. And if you can't unload that on eBay this year because nobody's got any money, it's okay. You got a closet. You got storage. You bought it for $100. You bought it for $50. It's it's gold. It's just a question of you know you're going to be making money on it. You just don't know quite when. So speaking of... Speaking of gold, ah, Segway. Okay, we were supposed to talk about bonds and currencies, bonds and gold, and commodities. Today, okay, so real quick, which we haven't done at all. So should we still, still sure, want to talk about sure, it? sure, sure, sure? Let's talk about bonds. Bonds are pretty simple, right? Bonds are just, and this is just just to back up for a second. This is part of what we've been discussing of what alternate investments besides the stock market, right? Um, and so we kind of made a list of. Five so the, 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 big, the big two are bonds and stocks, right? That's what pretty much <clears throat> most of the money is invested in, in, in people's retirements is bonds and stocks. <clears throat> and stocks are thought to be much riskier than bonds. Um, if you put your money in the market as a whole, 
you're going to make likely, assuming you know you time it right, you, you're not in a 25-year slump or something, but over a long period of time, you're going to make much, much more money in the stock market than you would in bonds. So Why um, is that? Because bonds um, don't carry as much uncertainty with them about what the return's going to be. In the bond, the return, you know, again, depending on the, the quality of the borrower. Okay, so a bond is a loan, Yeah, right? it's an IOU. Okay. Yeah. And for some reason, people are securitizing these loans. Or not. And selling them. Could be. I mean, like, the United States government doesn't securitize... Well, I guess they monetize it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not secured by anything other than their Oh, good, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, yeah. like, packaging them. Yeah, they package them up. Okay. I For some reason, I have a very hard time, like, conceiving of bonds. Like, a stock I can, I can get my metaphorical hands around because yeah. it's, like, a company and there are people there and I can, I, you know, can go to a company and understand that. Sure. A bond is a mysterious financial instrument. Okay, but it might not be as mysterious as you think. I know it's simple. Like, you just, um, a couple years ago, you bought a a nice condo. Yeah. And um, you didn't pay all cash. No. You borrowed some money. Yeah, they sold my mortgage. Is that that where you're going? Yeah. They sold my mortgage to some other mortgage company. Yeah, that mortgage is a bond. Uh-huh. It's a it's a loan from some mortgage company, a bank or whatever, to you that you used to pay for part of the the condo you bought. Oh, wait a second. Say that again. Are you saying my mortgage is a bond? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying like when they sold it to another No, nah, it's a bond from square one. Oh, I see. It's kind of, it's just like a real estate bond is all it is. So, essentially a bond is just a loan from one party to another party, one person to another person, or one company to another person. Um, and they, uh, what happens a lot in real estate is people make that, that loan. Like, let's say that the owner of the building, uh, let's say that you could get financing for half of the condo, but not, and you have enough money to pay another 10%, so you've got 60% of it covered. Okay. The owner of that condo in order to make the deal happen, could say, look, I'll lend you the other 40%. So you'll owe me, let's say, in this case, $200,000, and um, we'll put an interest rate of 10% on it, and you now have to pay the interest, and in five years, you got to pay off the whole 200000 bucks. Okay. All right? So it's interest only, $200,000. That's a bond, basically. So now you're paying 10% interest, all right? You've borrowed the money. And you're paying the interest. So this person who owns the, who, who is the owner of the bond, they're getting ten percent per year. Now, it okay. de- and it depends on so how the good the owner your of the is. bond is the one that's going to get paid. They yeah. get the interest. Yeah. So in the mortgage example, the classical mortgage example, the owner of the bond is the bank. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Now. So if I go buy a bond, I become the owner of the bond. If you go buy a bond, you're Lending your money to somebody. That's where I get confused. Because I because I'm the owner of the bond, but I have Okay, got it. So you've put up the money. I've put up the money and I'm getting paid interest. Somehow. And you're getting paid interest. Am I really getting paid interest? Yeah. Like do I get a check every month or once a year? Or Typically something? twice a year. Alright. Yeah. Yep. Every six months you get a check. Maybe once a year you get a check. Huh. You know? Actually, in the case of the real estate 
mortgage bond, you get it every month, just like that. Now, here's the cool thing, is that that piece of paper that this person has that you signed that said you'd pay this thing, mm-hmm. that is saleable. That's, a, that's an instrument that you can sell. And that's what we start to think about bonds. It, that's like This is a primary relationship between you and the, and the guy that lent you the money. And now he can take this thing and sell it, which happens all the time in the real estate market. Mm-hmm. So this guy's going, well, shoot, I really need as much of that 200000 as I can get. I've got a really nice interest rate on this bond right here. 10%, wow, in a market where you know a 30-year T-bill is 3%. Mm-hmm. This is awesome. We've got a five-year balloon. That's competing with a 1% treasury note. This is I'm going to be able to sell this, right? And he may go out there and sell it for 250000 to somebody. That, now, when they buy it, obviously, this is paying $20,000 a year. And if they paid 250000 for it, they're not getting 10% anymore, right? Right. They're getting whatever that is, 8%. <laughs> so, the, that, but the, the key thing is that it's not um, that we don't do these things in our real life all the time. We do them all the time. We take mortgage, mortgages. Everybody is familiar with mortgages. Those are just kind of a bond. That's all. Okay. So the most famous bonds are the U.S. government bonds. And those are called lots of different kinds of names, treasury notes, T-bills, T-bonds. Um, and those are... The federal government borrowing money from you, if you were to buy one, or from me, and I would give them $100,000, and they would give me this IOU called a treasury bond. And we would determine whether it's for a year, uh, they've got one of those, or five years, they got those, 10 years, 30 years. So they create different lengths of time. There, there are bonds in Europe you can do for 90 years now, I think 100-year bonds. Whoa. I think Mexico just issued a 100-year bond. Wow. You know, we'll pay you back in 100 years. Meanwhile, you get interest at this rate. Let's hope we're still around. Yeah, <laughs> hope we're still around. So that's somebody's bet against inflation right there. So, <laughs> so these bonds get created, and what makes the U.S. government bonds so interesting is that they're, they're pretty easily bought and sold. Right? So if we go back to your, the example of your real estate bond, this person's got this bond, nice bond, but there's no market for that bond that he can go to. There's no stock market. There's no bunch of brokers. You know, it's like, what am I going to do with this bond? And then people put ads in the paper and say, hey, I have a note here you can buy. No. Yeah, they do. What Absolutely, do they do. People put an, an ad in a Los Angeles Times and say, for sale, you know, mortgage note carries 10% interest for five-year balloon on $200,000. And they'll... <laughs> you mean like today, people... I didn't even know classified <laughs> ads still existed. Well, you could probably put it online, but I, I know back, back in the 80s, that was common <laughs> because interest rates were crazy. There, a, one, one family oh. I know sold their building and got a 16% mortgage. Wow. And they just said, you know, I'd rather have the cash. And they discounted it and got cash. And somebody got 20% per year from the person that bought that building, secured by the building. Hmm. You know? So the bond world is pretty, pretty simple. It's just a loan, piece of paper defining the terms of that loan. And um, there's all kinds of bonds out there. There's U.S. government bonds that they use to pay for the debts of the U.S. government, keep it all running. There's um, uh, uh, county bonds like you know, Orange County issues its bonds. There's city bonds called, called municipal bonds. Um, and then there's just 
corporations that are wanting to raise money and they don't want to dilute their shareholders, so they're not going to sell more stock. Instead, they're going to, particularly right now when interest rates are so low, they're going out and into the market through one of the investment banks and they're going to say, look, we want you to go raise us $100 million and um, we will issue a bond and we'll pay 8% interest and, uh, and it's all due and payable in five years and, you know, go raise $100 million. Those are done all the time. Okay, so how, how would I buy one of them? What do I do? Well, buying them, is, buying them is trickier. That's why people don't know that much about bonds is because there's not a large market for these bonds that's liquid, meaning you can buy them and sell them easily. Oh, okay. So maybe this doesn't really belong in our list of things. It does for one doing. really important reason that I'm going to get to in a second, okay. which is all about the sort of lack of liquidity in the bond market. So first off, treasury bonds are pretty easy to buy and sell, U.S. government bonds. Okay. But they don't produce a very high rate of return right now. And so people are buying other kinds of bonds. And you'll find it's much, much easier to buy some of these other bonds, like small corporation bonds uh, from a corporation that doesn't have a you know, really good balance sheet, um, which are commonly called junk bonds, might be carrying a okay. 10 or 11 or 12% interest rate, which is really interesting to people right now. Where would you buy one of those? So you can actually go onto a brokerage site like online, like interactive brokers. Oh, like the same brokerage you would use to buy, to a stock. buy stocks? Sure. They, okay. And those bonds have a specific name on them. You can go to the company and it'll tell you what the name is. And you put that name in and it tells you, here, you can buy it for this much. Right? But there's a big gap in bonds that don't trade a lot, just like in options that don't trade a lot, between what's being asked and what is being bid. Hmm. And that gap can be gigantic. So the problem with buying bonds directly for most investors is that you can buy them well enough, it's selling them that gets a little tricky. You might have to discount the bond substantially from what you paid for it in order to get rid of it if you have to sell it right away. So the sort of I think the right way to think about bonds is to buy them and expect you're never going to sell them. You'll just hold them until they expire. And so a good financial advisor <clears throat> might set up a series of bonds that will expire over, let's say, the next five years. So, and let's say that you have, you want $60,000 a year coming in. So he sets up enough bonds um, so that they're producing that $60,000 a year. And after year one, some of those bonds have expired and he can buy new ones down the road five years. And then the next year, a two-year bond has expired. He can buy new ones down the road five years after that. Sure. So this is called laddering bonds. Okay. And it's really smart. And laddering I'm, like a ladder. Yeah, like a ladder. Like so the like expirations every year you're are, getting and some amount. Yeah. And yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. And a good financial advisor can help you with that. So you, there's a little more sophisticated way of dealing with not wanting risk because you want them to just go to expiration so you don't have any risk about whether or not it's... It's, uh, so basically you're just buying them to get down. the interest That's it. And in then the meantime, and then they expire, you get your money back. You get back, your money back. And you start over. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So that's basically the way bonds work. Um, and the beauty of working with somebody that knows what they're doing on bonds is that you can avoid, um, you can get the virtually all of the benefits of an annuity by laddering bonds. 
And yeah, that's what I was about to say, is that it sounds exactly like an annuity, is. which is, there's no way that's true, because otherwise there wouldn't be all this discussion of bonds and investing in bonds, and here's how you make money on bonds. Well, the annuity has some really severe downsides to it. One is that if you buy an annuity um, that's going to pay you out a certain amount of money the rest of your life when you're 70 years old and you're expecting that to go for 20 years or so, and then you die two years later, you don't get any money back. If you had laddered bonds to get the same job done, you'd have all of your money still there. Understood. So that's a huge dis- disadvantage. But how do people make money on bonds? There must be... So how do they make good, them when they trade them? Yeah. Okay. Let's say that... So people are... Tra- people, this laddering system sounds Yeah, you're reliable. just paying retail and it's reliable, and but you're not going to make but a lot of money. But that's not what people are doing with <clears throat> bonds, no. right? Well, no. That, that's the majority of people who are doing bonds are simply trying to get a really low-risk constant rate of return that they can count on in their retirement particularly. Okay. Right? Because if you if, if, if you don't need to use the money for a long time, the stock market dwarfs bonds in terms of its rate of return. Like $100 invested in 1928 in bonds became is, is worth $7,000 today on a, on, a, on a 10-year bond. So it's averaged about 5% a year. Because it was rolled over each time. Yeah, because you're rolling it, rolling it, rolling it over time. Okay. Okay. So that goes from 100 to about 7,000. That same amount of money invested in the stock market would have made 9% per year instead of 5% per year, including uh, including um, dividends, and that would be worth 270,000. Oh, that's you know a minor difference. <laughs> 7,000 versus 270,000 is not minor. It's quite large. So. Um, Bonds, the, the advantage of bonds is security, low risk, and a consistent rate of return. The disadvantage is you're not going to get very much money from bonds unless you speculate in bonds. And so just briefly, you can do that. Here's one way to do it. Um, companies which have issued bonds, um, those bonds are out in the market. There's a secondary market can build up around those bonds. So if the company's having severe problems, the owners of the bonds may be worried that the company will go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And they may be willing to discount their, uh, their payback substantially. So, for example, um, they're, they're expecting to get $1,000 back, but the company's having severe problems. It may not be able to be able to, to pay them off out of cash flow in 18 months. And so they discount the bond and say, please take this off my hands. I'll sell it for $700. Now, you know you're going to get $1,000 in 18 months if this company survives, (laughs) plus the company has to pay you 10% interest, right? 5% every six months. So you're going to collect 15% on the interest in 18 months, and you're going to collect this bonus if if all goes well. So if that works out, you might make 60% in 18 months. Got it. And that's speculation. You can do it very with fundamental investing. I mean, if you know that the company will pay you off... That can be a great investment. So yeah. that's that's how bonds go. Okay. I think we're going to have to talk about gold next time. Yeah, let's talk about gold next time. But that was um, that was a good summary, I think, of bonds. How would I know? Maybe it's a terrible summary. <laughs> I'm sounded, sure we're here. It sounded like a good summary. We'll hear from our listeners because I've I've just really like always who, struggled. With we bonds. should definitely write letters, long ones, to Danielle. At what address? Well, it's email now, Dad. Oh, yeah. Email, email is what we do. 
And the email, he's old, everybody. I know about and email. And the email address is questions at investedpodcast.com. Questions? questions at investedpodcast.com. At investedpodcast.com. All right. And, and, and just write lots of them so she has lots of people she has to answer. And you guys tell us that that makes sense on bonds. And I guess it's time to go. <laughs> okay. So we'll talk about gold and, um, and currencies next time. All right. Cool. All right. More on alternative investments next time. Time to go play. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.